All right, everyone, this is another episode of The Big Questions with Big John. Uh, in case you haven't uh, caught the show before, this is where I talk to folks that I know and uh, have reached out to because I find them very interesting. And today we have a super guest. Um, he may not be a household name, but everything he's touched, you're deeply familiar with, I can guarantee you. His name is Mark Hirschfeld, and he's a casting director for just about any show that you could probably recall. So I would say starting in the 70s, Mark, uh, all the way through today, if, if I recall sort of your, your, uh, your list of accomplishments. And let me just read off a couple of names here. And I actually have to read them off because they're way too, but I won't read all of them. But like you, you were the casting director for series like ER, Party of Five. Um, and I think, uh, but mainly your focus was in comedy. I see uh, The 70s Show. Uh, One Day at a Time, The Jeffersons, Alf, The Nanny, Third Rock from the Sun, The Drew Carey Show, That 70s Show, and then possibly four of my favorite comedies of all time, Married with Children, Seinfeld, Curb Your Enthusiasm, and News Radio. Um, things that I just love growing up and even love to this day, and you had an intimate hand in all of those. So, Mark, welcome, and uh, thank you for joining me today. Thanks. Just a correction. Um, I did not cast Curb Your Enthusiasm, although I appeared in an episode. I remember you were in that episode. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. So I gave you too much credit, perhaps, yeah. but still involved uh, uh, with that show as well. So that's fantastic. So my first question in general is, what got you into casting? I mean, was it something that you always aspired to do? Um, is it something that you kind of somehow stumbled into? What's the story behind that? Well, actually, um, I stumbled into it because you don't really learn about, I mean, I was an actor in high school, a little bit in college, nothing I wanted to do professionally. Uh, and, you know, there, you really didn't know what a casting director was when you're in school because, you know, the director cast the, play, the show and then put up the, the notice who got what role and that was the end of it. So... I didn't realize there was such a profession. And I moved out to Los Angeles after, well, my aspiration was after college was to be a documentary filmmaker. <clears throat> and um, I ended up moving out to Los Angeles because I had a, um, uh, a cousin who had a couch to let me sleep on. Okay. <clears throat> and uh, I started looking for a job out there and after some short-term gigs, including working in the mailroom at Warner Brothers and, you know, some other things like that, working as a receptionist at a radio station, I got a job as a production assistant, or we used to call it gopher, uh, gopher coffee, right. gopher scripts, um, at Norman Lear's production company, which was called Tandem Television. And I was working on a couple of pilots that um, were yet to be cast. So there was very little to do in the production office, but there was a lot to do in the casting office. So they let me out to the casting department to answer phones and do errands and whatnot. And um, I just loved it. And I kind of made myself indispensable over the course of two, three months. And they didn't want to let me go afterwards and I stayed in the department and worked my way up from an assistant to basically a casting director almost a, you know over the course of a year because there was so much content they were producing at the time 
and they really only had two senior casting executives in the department and way too much for them to do. So myself and another young woman named Robin Stoltz, um, you know, be, were given more uh, responsibility and and started casting in our own right. And we sort of learned while we earned. Wow, that's that's really um, that's really great. And I think it's a, a key lesson there is sometimes you don't know what path you're going to end up on, and it's good to just jump into something you love wholeheartedly and and and. <clears throat> see, see where you go from there. So that's great. Um, one of the questions that I have is, especially back in the 70s, before the internet, obviously, um, how do you know who to bring in? How do you know, like, was it a lot of like Rolodexing or going to parties? How do you know who to bring in back then? Well, back then, you know, now we have, um, there's this company called Breakdown Services that you use as a casting director, which you're sending out a, digital notification of the project you're working on and the roles you're looking for. And that goes to every major agent and manager in the country and across the world, if you want, and you can pick and choose what locations you want to, you know, release the breakdowns. And, um, back then there was no such thing. And so the agents in town used to, actually come by the office once a week, sit down in the waiting room and read the scripts, and they'd carry around their big um, uh, binders of actors with them, and they would literally read the script and then pitch actors to us wow. um, by sitting down and showing us the headshots and the resumes of the people we might want to audition. And then we had other casting um, agents calling on the phone and asking what our needs were. And so that's how actors were submitted for the roles. We also, because primarily all of it was sitcoms and being cast and shot in a very short time frame, usually the guest stars, <clears throat> you didn't have um, an opportunity to audition actors out of, New York, uh, out of Los Angeles. So it was rare to consider someone who was in New York or Chicago or elsewhere for a role, we pretty much focused on the LA talent, at least for the guest stars. When we're looking at series regulars on something, then we could go wider. We had more time available to cast the project. But for you know, comedy like The Jeffersons, 227, The Facts of Life, One Day at a Time, those were shows that we would literally get the script three or four days before they started production. And you had to just cast and meet instead of a casting session that next day. <clears throat> so it moved pretty quickly. So, um, so that's how we did it back in the day. And so between that and going to the theater and comedy clubs and watching other television, you sort of started to learn the talent pool. Right. And then that's how you become a good casting director is sort of expanding your knowledge of that talent pool beyond what you're currently casting to who else is out there and not in Los Angeles, but in other markets in the United States and Canada and Europe and, you know, Asia and everywhere else you need to look. Wow. That, that sounds amazing to me. I can't fathom it. For my own little project <clears throat> that I did a couple of years ago, I, when, you know, I acted as my own casting director. 
and I remember reaching out to you and you did tell me about the breakdown services. And even right. even now, um, using that, I found it so difficult to find the right person until I actually saw them come in for an yeah. audition, right? Yeah. Um, what would you say to aspiring actors and actresses um, who are going into auditions? Like, do you have any tips for them so they can either catch your eye or maybe interest you into having them, uh, giving them a call back or something. Like I know for me, one of the major things that got a couple of actors, their roles is they showed up prepared in character, dressed like the character and didn't leave anything to the imagination. Is that something you either prefer? Is that not the way you work? How does that work for you? Well, I think the most important thing that you mentioned is being prepared. You know, getting the material early, digesting it, and you know, you can you don't have to memorize it per se, but you really need to have a grasp of the material and the character. Um, and then there are things like you're right, being on time yeah. or being early, and you know, just the sense of professionalism and sort of commitment to the craft. I think that's the most important thing. And um, and sort of bringing a fully formed performance into the room with them. It's pretty easy to tell in the first four lines of what they're saying, whether or not they're going to be right for the role. Really? That I mean, quick for you. Over the past, over the court, usually the audition material they have is no more than two to four pages for an additional, for an original audition or a guest star. Maybe there might be a couple scenes if it's a series regular role, but um, I can tell within the first four or five lines if they have a real, if they're right for the role, sort of physically, if they have a real grasp of the character and an understanding of the character, and if they have the chops. Right, right. I, I seem to understand that. I I kind of knew who I was going to cast immediately, almost like you said, but I will admit to making a mistake or two initially um that once the actor had the full material they really had not fully grasped the character the way we had thought mm -hmm. and envisioned so that's that's interesting and i guess it's experience right now you said you could tell in about four lines whereas someone starting out might might be a little misdirected on that um great oh so one of the other things i wanted to ask you is uh, you were involved, if I'm not mistaken, in the recent uh, casting for the live versions of All in the Family and the Jeffersons in Good Times, right? Um, which I thought was fabulous, you know, uh, in terms of the way it was presented and, and just the nostalgia associated with it as well. Um, was it difficult casting actors who were not, say, stage actors, actors who are not familiar or used to being in front of a live audience as opposed to actors who came in for sitcoms where, you know, they get multiple takes and they get to rehearse more and more. I mean, is it, is it a different type of person you're looking for or is it just more straightforward? Well, you know, the multi-camera comedy, which those are, you know, perfect examples of that sort of that one set living room comedy is as close to a stage performance as you can get. Right. Um, you... Um, are playing to both the cameras and the live studio audience at the same time. And so you're, it's, as opposed to playing to the back of the room, like you do, would in a stage show in a very large theater, 
there's an intimacy involved with the cameras, but you're also feeding off the laughter and the reactions from the audience at the at the same time. And a lot of the blocking it's done is very similar to a stage production. So, you know, the most important thing is we're looking for actors who were strong comedians. The second thing that made it sort of unique is these are shows that are kind of ingrained in the American um, television history. Yes. And George and Wheezy and Marla Gibbs character and Archie and Edith and Meathead are, are, you know, there are hundreds of episodes out there. And so you're trying to find an actor who is um, going to bring the spirit of the original performance, but kind of make it their own. Right. You know, and so it's, it was a very sort of fine line to find actors that could um, uh, do that, had the confidence to sort of reinvent the character in their own right without trying to, you know, do an impersonation of Archie Munker, but sort of uh, capture his essence. Right, right. Without doing an impression. And that, and I think people sometimes get confused, right? Like if you're supposed to be Archie Bunker, there's a, there's a, I would assume a tremendous natural inclination to try to play it like Carol O'Connor did, yeah, and to become yeah. a Carol O'Connor uh, clone, so to speak. But right, um, but it does take that certain courage. I see what you're saying there. Uh, okay, as you can tell, I'm wearing my. Um, my Al Bundy poke high shirt in tribute to Married with Children, quite possibly my favorite sitcom of all time, Mark. Um, I thought it just broke uh, all sorts of barriers when it first came on. And I just loved that show. And of course, I've become a Married with Children junkie in terms of the history of it. And of course, there's a legendary story involving you and how you discovered Ed O'Neill for the role of Al Bundy. And I, when I say legendary, I think anyone you talk to in the sitcom business, in the TV business, they they know this story. But for some of our uh, viewers, maybe they don't know the story. I, and this always fascinated me. How did you get Ed O'Neill? Uh, Moya and Lovett said they, they couldn't find anybody. They had seen hundreds of comedic actors and nobody right. uh, seemed to fit the role. How did you end up with Ed O'Neill for that role? Well, you know, the show was originally developed for Sam Kinison and Roseanne. Right. Um, and on the brand new network, Fox, which no one even knew what it was. The idea of creating a fourth network at the time was just, you know, completely foreign to anyone. No one wanted to do it, <clears throat> but they passed on it. They didn't want to do it. And um, so we just started casting. And we did see a lot of wonderful comedic actors um, that went through the room. Certainly a hundred, I don't know about hundreds. Um, and we were really having a hard time um, because these actors and specifically for the role of Al were coming in and they were yelling and, you know, um, I had gone, you know, my uh, family grew up, I grew up in outside of Hartford, Connecticut and my stepmom and my stepsister are back there. And every time I would go back to visit, we'd get tickets to the Harvard Stage Company. 
and go to see a, a show. And it's, if you don't know it, it's one of the great regional theater companies in the United States. And um, there was a production of, of Mice and Men that was there. And um, this is a year before we started to cast um, Married with Children. <clears throat> so uh, we went back, I saw the show, and an actor named Ed O'Neill, who I didn't know, was playing the role of Lenny, who's the big sort of lovable, um, mentally uh, challenged um, part of this duo. Right. And um, he was, he blew me away. And anyway, saw the show, enjoyed it. You know, sort of kept an eye on him, but I didn't have anything specifically for him. Right. And just to be clear, uh, of Mice and Men is not a comedy. No. It's, it's no, a it drama, isn't. right? So you saw him yeah. in a in a very uh, dramatic role yeah. that had no comedic overtones, really. No, none at all. None at all. And we went back and we were casting Mary with Children and we were, you know, we saw er almost everyone that was submitted that was right. Um, you know, Michael Richards from Seinfeld came in and read for a lot of different, a lot of different right. people. And um, we couldn't find the guy. And I just started going through play programs, seeing if there was anyone I might have overlooked. And I remembered about Ed O'Neill. And there was just something about his performance in the role of this gentle giant that I felt there was some connected tissue between him and who Al Bundy could be. And um, I called his agent and he just happened to be in town. Okay. And um, they, I said, well, we need to see him right away. He had actually come out, I think, to audition. He was usually based in New York and came out to, he's a New York theater actor. He had done one drama pilot called Popeye Doyle, which was based on the French Connection, it was failed. And he happened to be in LA. I said, can we get him in right away? So apparently he was playing handball down the street at the Hollywood Athletic Center. And his agents called him and said, uh, listen, there's this terrible show <laughs> called, at the time it was called Not the Cosby Show. Right. And uh, they want to see you, but they need to see you right away. And he's like, well, I'm playing handball right now. He says, well, look, it's right down the street at Sunset Gower. It's like literally five blocks away. So he finished his game and he came to the office with his gym bag. And he literally had like, I don't know, 15 minutes, 20 minutes to look at the script. But being a theater actor, he, you know, was able to absorb it relatively quickly. And um, he came in the room, and instead of sort of entering the room, sort of ranting and raving, he came in with this sort of this defeated quality to him, because it was sort of the end of the day, he was coming home from work. And it was a take on the character that really no one to that point had done. And it was absolutely, talk about owning the role, he absolutely embodied the character and made it like his own and unique and just blew us away. Yeah. Now that said, there was another actor who auditioned the role that they liked as well. Okay. 
um, and who was a little more um, energetic, a little less tired. And so, and then at the same time, there were a couple actresses that we had liked for um, his wife. Uh, there was Katie Segal and another wonderful actress named Nancy Lenahan. If you look her up, you'll know her immediately. She's been in a, you know, dozens and dozens of TV shows. <clears throat> and um, so we wanted to test them both at Fox. It was their very first network test that they ever had. Now, a network test, for those who don't know, is you make deals with the actors, they're called test option deals, prior to them auditioning for the network so that they've negotiated all six years of their contract, including what the money's going to be and the dressing room and the billing and the travel and relocation fees, everything, prior to them even stepping in the room to audition. And the, the reason of that is it gives us the studio some leverage in the negotiation as opposed to auditioning someone saying, congratulations, you have the role, now let's make a deal. And they say, oh, I want $100,000 an episode. And you just can't do that. <clears throat> so when they know there's competition, it's more likely to be a deal which is more reasonable. Right. So um, we went to negotiate deals with um, Ed and the other actor and Katie and Nancy's representatives. And we closed the deals, except um, Ed O'Neill turned down the money. He passed. Wow. He was back in New York. You know, he went back to New York. We wanted to fly him in to test. And he's like, and, and it was low money. And it was certainly more money than he ever made. Hmm. But he just said, yeah, I'm not going to do it. Wow. And um, Levin and Moy, the producers were like, okay. <laughs> All right, we'll just go in without him. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. He's the guy. We got to bring him. So we, I managed to convince the business first people that are negotiating the deal to enhance the fee a little bit. And um, he eventually accepted and we flew him out and he came in and tested for the role. Like I said, it was the first network test at Fox because everything else was um, ordered to series was sort of like, it was the George C. Scott show and the, you know, all these shows with big bankable stars. And we were sort of the little show where we didn't have the stars. They're really relative unknown. They're all unknowns really. And so we had to sort of trot them in, in front of Barry Diller and the new network president, Garthy and Sierra Fox, and all their other executives to audition for them in person at 20th Century Fox. <clears throat> so we brought them in to read together. We sort of mixed and matched the two pairs of actors. Right. And, um, and everyone, you know, uh, let's start with um, the role of, um, um, Peggy, wife, Peggy, uh, everyone loved Katie. They're like, she's, she's the one she's done. And, um, all of us, except for Barry Diller loved Ed, hmm. but he was like, I just don't see it guys. 
I don't think he's a star. Wow. And, um, but he said, but do what you want to do. And then he left the room. <laughs> so everyone's like, oh my God, what are we going to do? Well, all the, you know, this, these were 13 episode commitments, all these shows. So it wasn't a pilot like you normally do. And then another, you know, and then it gets assessed and then they pick up another 12 episodes. All the actors had deals for 13 episodes, pay or play. So <clears throat> I don't think I'm talking out of school. Um, they were so nervous about Ed they renegotiated his deal. So it was the pilot, it was episode one. And then they had the option to pick up the other 12 episodes a week after the show was completed. So they could look at it and then make a decision. Mm. And they, his agents reluctantly agreed to that. <clears throat> so he got the role as did Amanda Bearson, David Garrison. And we shot the, um, the episode and the audience went nuts. I mean, the electricity in the audience was just palpable. And, um, and they like picked them up the next day. They wow. picked up the option the next day. It was just so clear that he was the guy. Now I will tell you, I remember we shot it, I think right before Christmas <clears throat> and maybe it's Thanksgiving. But I brought, I had the um, the uh, VHS tape of episode one of the pilot episode, um, and I brought it back to Connecticut with me to see my family for the holiday. And I said, "Okay, there's this show I'm working on. I'm really excited about it, and uh, I want to see what you think." So I put in the VCR and I turn it on, and people watch the show, and they're like. I hate it. Oh my it's it's offensive. <laughs> it's I hate them. I hate the characters, the kids, um, and uh, uh, it's just um, they just did not like it. And I was like raving about it. I said, "You're wrong. This is like breaking all the." all the barriers and all the stereotypes of what a right. sitcom is. And <clears throat> anyway, so um, I kind of knew I was right. Well, we went back and uh, the first episode, they looked at it and they said, you know, we really love it, but we want to change out the kids. So, um, you know, we had done at the very end of pilot season, a lot of kids were just not available. And um, so before we did episode two, we recast the two kids uh, with David Faustino and Christina Applegate, who neither who had been available. I think David was seen the first go around and they dismissed him. Christina was tied to another project that ended up not going forward. And so we were able to recast her into the role. And so that's how um, it came together. Oddly enough, the first actor that was cast in the project was David Garrison, mm -hmm. because Levin and Moy had done a pilot, um, and actually turned into a short-lived series for Norman's company called It's Your Move several years before, and David Garrison was the male lead, 
And uh, the young male lead was Jason Bateman, who was, you know, 10 at the time or something. <clears throat> and, um, the, you know, Levin and Moy just loved David. And he was a theater actor in New York and um, didn't love being in Hollywood, but he kind of reluctantly signed on. And, um, and uh, as the neighbor, as the straight-laced neighbor. Steve Rose. So he, yeah. So he was the first actor that was actually cast. And then Amanda, who had never done comedy before, um, I had seen in this uh, comedy horror movie called Fright Night. And I just was sort of smitten with her and had her in um, to read for them. And they just loved her. Absolutely loved her. I don't even know if there was another contender for that role. I, I don't remember off the top of my head. And she was great in that role. I think yeah. um, a lot of people underestimated what she brought to that series um, well, as that neighbor. It was such a counterpoint. <clears throat> she and David were such a counterpoint yes. to, you know, Al and um, Peggy. Right. That's what made it sort of fun. It, it, the it, idea it, that they were these two kind of newlyweds and they were, you know, uh, you know, Mary Tyler Moore and um, and Dick Van Dyke in a way. Yes. And and um, Al and Peggy were sort of guiding them through what married life was and yes. sort of the rules of marriage was a great was one of my favorite parts of the show. It, it was fantastic. And I keep saying this to people. If you there's a lot of great sitcoms on TV. Um, I, I love The Odd Couple, All in the Family, of course. Um, but when you take Married with Children, it allowed, I think it broke the, it led the way for sitcoms like Roseanne. Yeah, for uh, sure. And and those types of sitcoms, which weren't your um, Cosby Show type sitcoms, right. and obviously from the original title, not the Cosby Show, Moya and Levitt felt the same way. That's a fantastic, I love hearing Married with Children stories. Thank you for that. The other one I want to ask you about is Seinfeld. And obviously, we know that became one of the greatest sitcoms of all time. Um, one of the questions I've always had was, as a casting director, now we've all heard the stories that George, um, uh, that uh, Jason Alexander was supposed to be a takeoff of um, Larry there. David, and that um, uh, Michael <clears throat> Richards was a takeoff of the real Cosmo Kramer that lived mm -hmm. across the street from, or the apartment across from, and also... Uh, that Julia Louis-Dreyfus was supposed to be Carol Leifer, supposedly. Yeah. Allegedly. I don't know. That's what I wanted to ask you. Like, yeah. as a casting director, did you have those directives in mind? Yeah. So, or how did you approach that? Well, you know, as we started casting, and by the way, I would say that that show, um, Married with Children, also kind of allowed that show to be what it was because the way that Married with Children had no sort of golden moments right. in it or you know had characters that were you know self-centered and you know um seinfeld kind of had the same kind of feel to it in its own way yes um so obviously when i read the script i knew that the relationship between george and jerry was based on the relation between Larry and Jerry. Um, I didn't know who Cosmo Kramer was in real life, you know, or, you know, who um, Kramer was. Julia's character was not in the pilot episode. There was 
really, she came in when the show was picked up the series. Um, and nor was I looking for someone that looked like Larry David. Um, I really was looking for someone who was a counterpoint to Jerry, who had a um, glass half full kind of attitude. Well, George's was sort of the glass half empty. So we saw a lot of people for that role. And um, it came down to two actors. Well, Jason had auditioned on tape in New York. And I knew him because I cast a, a series uh, called ER and not the ER drama, but, um, but the ER comedy, it was short-lived comedy which um, starred um, uh, Mary McDonnell and, um, and um, um, I'm good now. It'll come to me in a second. Um, and actually George Clooney was in the comedy version and Jason Alexander was in the comedy version. It was a multi-camera comedy. So I knew Jason from that. So we had him audition on tape in New York and I showed them the tape. And back then it wasn't an easy thing. They had to go into an office and tape and the tapes were shipped out FedEx and then you had to slug through the, fast forward through the tapes and it's not like today, it's not instantaneous. It was like a real effort to get actors to go on tape out of town. <clears throat> not like today where it's faster to actually put a virtual casting session together internationally you can do that quicker than it is to get actors in my office in LA. But um, so I got his tape and it was really between him and a comedian named Larry Miller. Oh, Larry who Miller. Who was also uh, like one of Jerry Seinfeld's best friends. And Jerry felt very strongly that Larry was, Larry Miller was the right guy for the role because he knew Larry so well, they were good friends, and he had a shorthand with him. Um, and it was really Larry David that was really pushing for um, Jason. Hmm. Um, and, well, it became clear when we flew Jason in and we had Jerry Reed opposite, because I was reading opposite all these actors. Right. Jerry and Larry watching, and um, I would read Jerry's part. And when Jerry started reading with the actors on a callback with a short list of actors, because he just didn't want to sort of wear out the material, because um, we would see hundreds of actors, um, it became very clear pretty quickly that Jason was the, was the right fit for the role. <laughs> And you know what's oh. interesting about, I didn't know about Larry Miller, but just uh, thinking about Larry Miller now in my mind's eye, he's a he's a tall, bigger man, right, than Jason Alexander. Yeah. So physically, I think that he may, you didn't want someone to be bigger than Jerry in that relationship, right, physically. Um, also, the thing was, Larry has a great, Larry Miller has a great cadence to him. Yes. And... Um, but there is kind of a button-down quality to him. I can't. I don't know if I can explain more than that. There's a formal quality to him, it, kind of a reserve. Mm. 
And, and Jason is a lot more volatile. And there's his neuroses he wears on his sleeve. Yes. Larry's is more internal and buttoned down. Yes. And it just was a better counterpoint to Jerry's character. I could see that, definitely, yeah. yeah. That's that's uh, I didn't know the Larry Miller story, so thank you yeah. for that. Uh, that's that's then, something I didn't know. If you're interested, yes. So the other role of Michael Richards, as I mentioned, Mike Michael can't come in. I I'd known of Michael because he was on like a short a short-lived sitcom called I can't remember what it was. He was like this wacky gardener. Okay. But he was on Fridays. Fridays, I, yeah. But as a, he was a comedian, a comedic actor. And he had read for Al Bundy's character, and I thought I would have him come in and read for um, Kramer. And um, Kramer's character, as written, was this um, um, uh, a shut-in. Really, he did not. You know, he did not like to go outside. He got up late, would enter the apartment, shuffle around in his bathrobe. <laughs> You know, and um, and that is not how Michael attacked the material. And I do mean attacked it, right. <laughs> you know, and um, and the other actor who's a wonderful actor who tested against him was an actor named Steve Vinovich, who is, does a lot of commercials and um, it was good, you know, wonderful. He'd done a lot of sitcoms and he he really read it audition as written mm. <clears throat> and um he was the front runner going into the test and um michael richards was kind of the wild card literally wild card right. his performance was more explosive and unpredictable and we tested it was like we were like the last show to test i can't remember exactly what it was but we had to test in front of Warren Littlefield, um, who was the president of NBC. And they were at like their upfront meetings or I think we maybe it was a press tour or something. And they were at like the Century Plaza Hotel or the Century City Hotel. And um, we actually all had to trot over there. And in between meetings in a um, conference room, we actually did the test there. And so Steve Vinovich performed, came in, read, was great. And then Michael Richards came in and literally blew the door open. And, um, and Larry and Jerry were really making, trying to make a case for Steve Vinovich because it was the role as written. And Warren Littlefield said, you know what? You can't not go with Michael Richards. I know it's not as written, but that is a performance you want to see every week. Right. So that's how he got the role. Yeah, his physical uh, gyrations in that role are amazing. Yeah. Just yeah. just the way he slides into a room or, you know, a yeah. fantastic actor. Uh, absolutely. The last one I want to ask you about is not so much the show, but the, but the lead in it, which would be the Norm show, Norm MacDonald. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my favorite comedians, I find his anti-humor almost is meta humor to be absolutely yeah. amazing now one of the things i noticed about that show is that every character in the show has the same name as the actor playing them 
<laughs> I guess you're right. It's been a long time since I've thought about the show or seen the show, so you'll have to apologize for memory lapse. But yeah, I mean, it was sort of based on his life. Right. You know, it was Norm was the first to admit that he's not a great actor. He's not a great thespian. Right. And so, and with a lot of comedians, you write very sort of close to the vest, whether it was Gary Shandling, Jerry Seinfeld, Drew Carey, Norm, right. you know, the, the, they know what their strengths are and they know what their weaknesses are. And so you write toward the strengths. And so Norm was really writing what he knew. And um, so I think he took a page out of that and was like, all right, well, we're just going to have all the actors have the names that they're named, you know? I saw an interview with him and he said, uh, you know, man, I can't remember all these lines and names, you know? So he, Laurie Metcalf's character was Laurie. And, right. You know, so on and so And I just thought that was hilarious. And, uh, um, and uh, Norm seems like a, he comes off as sort of strange in his act. How is he really though? Is that his character? Is he, is he that way 24 seven? He's a little, I mean, look, a great guy, really funny, very dry wit, um, and a little off. Okay, but fair enough. Guy. There's nothing, you know, creepy about him or, um, or, I mean, I think sort of, it's, it's very close to who he is. Okay, that's fair you know? enough. Yeah, that's fair <laughs> enough. All right, Mark. Well, thank you for covering those. Now I have some quick questions for you. Not relating to any show in particular, but I'll just throw them at you. Um, someone you never got a chance to work with, but always wanted to. Um, a um, a, an actor or a comedian or a anyone, anyone, someone that you said I really want to work with that person, whether it was a comedian, an actor, actress, director, writer. Hmm. Um. Boy, I am trying to think who that would be. Now you put me on the spot. Fair enough. Uh, we can come back to it if you want. Let me, let me think about that one for a minute. Okay. I would say, I would say this. You know, uh, we cast Jim Carrey in the Larry Sanders show. And I never got to work with him personally, but I actually got to watch him on set um, when he did his thing on the talk show right. and it was, you knew that you were in the presence of sort of a mad genius. Right. So I, I would say that's, that's definitely one of, one of them. Yeah. I and so respected him, his, a, you know, that explosive original comedy. The other person I would say is Robin Williams. And I got to know him a little bit um, when he was um, a, sort of a starting comedian in New York before Mork and Mindy, but I never really got to work with him. And once again, I was always kind of blown away by his, his inventiveness and genius, although I never got to know him right. or work with him the way I would have liked. 
Yeah, and certainly you could see similarities between Carrie and Williams in, yeah. in, in, in a lot of their comedy. And, and, and I don't know about uh, but Jim Carrey now. It's, what's the HBO series Kidding that he's in? Yeah. It's, it's fantastic, yeah. yeah. Um, bigger pain to work with, stand-up comedians or comedic actors? Bigger pain? Well, you know, there are actors and comedians that are lovely and then there are ones that are temperamental or difficult and i don't think you i can point to one one group of actors and say they're the troublemakers you know what i mean right i think, right. I think each set have their challenges um and i think there are maybe more um let me put this comedians that are not difficult, but are darker than I think it just I think stand up comedy attracts um, more damaged souls. Fair enough. Than it does um, than the acting pool, I would say. That's interesting. Um, I tend to agree with you. I think you can't be a successful stand up comedian if if you're happy in life, if you're satisfied with life, it makes it difficult to be a yeah. stand-up comedian, yeah. I think. Right. Um, but uh, great. Would you say it's easier to cast for comedies now or back in the 70s? And I'm referring specifically to the PC culture, the cancel culture, the, the social awareness that we have now because of the technology you know, the social platforms, right. like you said. So do you think it's easier to cast for for a comedy now or uh, technical issues aside, of course, now or in, say, when you first started in the 70s and early 80s? Well, I, you know, the fact that everything that you post on social media is there in perpetuity in some way, you know, there are, a lot of people that have posted things on social media that they've regretted and that have come back and sort of haunted them. And, and you make a sort of a misstep uh, now, whether it's on Twitter or on YouTube, and it comes back and haunts you. And so I think back then there wasn't that um potential stigma based on i mean for example you know kathy griffin who i've known for years and years and you know she did seinfeld and you know she's a wonderful comedic actress and a wonderful comedian and you know one screw up really was a huge blow to her career yes yes you know and uh, it's just this, the, the, I would say that um, the public is a lot less forgiving now of those kind of missteps than they were back then. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. And, and just a little bit to ask you a little bit further on that. Is it just the public or do you feel that entertainment executives are less forgiving or are they just reacting to, to the public perception? I think they're sensitive. I think they're de you're definitely sensitive to obviously the advertisers and 
and um, other groups that um, might lobby against them. I definitely think there's a sensitivity to that. I don't think all of it is is bad. Um, you know, some people have done some very bad things and they've had to pay the price. Sure, absolutely. Um, and um, so I think there's a sensitivity to it. But um, I don't know. It, yeah. I don't know if, you know, the, the will Louis C.K. revive his career? Well, I mean, look, he's an enormously talented guy. Right. He made some, you know, bad mistakes. Sure. And he's working very hard to see if he can move through it. Right. You know, Aziz right. Ansari managed to do it. Right. Right. I agree with you. Um, and another thing about Married with Children, which on this topic was they actually were targeted. Um, oh yeah, by Terry oh, Ricolta. Made the show more popular though. Yes, and I was and and to me at the time, what I took away from it was that they didn't the and especially Fox didn't buckle under. Uh, no. Now you might you might argue being trying to establish a fourth network, they had a little more latitude and and so forth. Well, but I would say beyond that, they had really nothing to lose. Okay, because they were completely off the radar. And the fact that there was a controversy about one of their shows that no one was really watching and people were tuning in to see what's all this about then right. um, really helped get the ratings on Married with Children where they, you know, made it into a hit. Right. I agree. Made it a platform where the people say, oh, God, this is a funny show. It's on this fourth network that I didn't even know existed. Right. And I love the fact that Married with Children always made fun of that. They would always have Fox viewing positions in the show. Right. So they all held up antennas and weird stuff like that. Right. Could you do a Married with Children today, do you think? Well, I mean, you know, going back to when we did the All in the Family, Jefferson's Good Time reboot, you know, those shows we shot, we did live again. The original scripts, not a word was changed from the original scripts. And there was some material there. I mean, there were a lot of disclaimers sure. before the shows from Jimmy and Norman on the air, and they were written, you know, because, you know, people use the N-word, and there were, you know, you know uh, Archie Bunker, um, you know, there was no ethnic, ethnic group that was sacrosanct. And, sure. You know, so, you know, I don't think you could do that show today. So, but we did it. And it was a big hit. And I think half of it was nostalgia. Part of it was the fact that we had like a big uh, all-star cast in both of them. And the material is still relevant. So do I think we can do it today? I think there are shows that, that get close, you know? I think that, you know, there's a line in the sand and people definitely go over that line in the sand and talk about subjects that we wouldn't, you know... I mean, back in that day, there were things that you would never tackle. Yeah, I remember the big uh, all in the family on the abortion. Uh, yeah, was huge was a, back then. You know, her rape. Her rape, absolutely. Her rape yeah. one. You know, just the fact that when they did one day at a time, um, the fact that she was a, you know, a divorced woman was, I mean, Mary Taylor Moore was the, you know, the Mary Taylor Moore show was the first divorced woman, I think, on TV. 
And that was the time I was like, what? You know, but you know, now you have, you know, blended families with multi-ethnic children. And there are a lot of things that back then no one wanted to touch. Right. Agreed. Agreed. Um, especially the issue of um, homosexual characters on television, much more open now. I remember it being a big deal when Billy Crystal uh, played a, a gay character on Soap uh, initially. Yeah, of course. Uh, and that was then when Ellen came out on her show. Yeah, and then when Ellen came out, I was going to say that was the like a seminal moment as well. And it killed her career for years. Yeah. People forget that she was a sitcom actress. Uh, yeah. People just assume, uh, like if you're today's generation, you might assume that she was always a talk show host. Yeah. Uh, but she was a, she was a stand up comedian. And she was a sitcom actress. I remember even on a Fox thing, I think she was on something called Flying High, if I recall, just like a really. Oh, I'm sorry. Flying Blind, I think was it. But um, anyway, well, it was great talking to you. But Mark, one last question, sir, in the format of the uh, House uh, Committee on Anti-American uh, Activities. Are you now or were you ever a member of No Ma'am? Of No Ma'am? Yes. What is that? Oh, that was Al Bundy's group that he formed on Married <laughs> with Children. It stands for uh, National Organization of Men Against Amazonian Masterhood. Right, yeah. right, right. I, I honestly was... Uh too sensitive to be a member of that okay fair enough well mark <laughs> thank you for your time i really enjoyed this and certainly you let us in on some things that maybe a lot of people didn't know about and um thank you very much and best wishes to you and your family um, thank you. and uh hope we could talk again soon all right be well good all to right, see you, you too, mark good to all see right, you take care. bye, -bye.